My name is Ken Calhoun, a co-leader with Mike Satran of our Military Veterans Ministry. Memorial Day, originally called Decoration Day, from the early tradition of decorating graves with flowers, wreaths, and flags, is a day for remembrance of those who have died in service to our country. It was first widely observed on May 30th, 1868, to commemorate the sacrifices of Civil War soldiers. At that time, May was chosen as the month for Memorial Day because flowers would be in bloom all over the country to decorate the graves of the fallen. The following scripture personally connects me with the sacrifice that we remember on Memorial Day. Jesus said, noted in John 15, my command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Let's take a moment of silence to consider their sacrifice on our behalf. Dear God, thank you for your love for us. On Memorial Day, we remember the individuals that in the spirit of how Christ gave his life to provide us the opportunity to be saved from our sins, gave their lives for the purpose of preserving our liberty as citizens of the United States. They demonstrated the greatest of love by their sacrifice. Help us, God, to remember their sacrifice and be thankful for it, amen. All right, thank you, Ken. Good morning, everyone. It's good seeing you here today. If, uh, if you're newer here, you may actually be wondering who I am because uh, up to about two weeks ago, I was on an eight-week sabbatical where I just got to get away for a little bit, got to enjoy some rest and hanging out with my family, traveling, and one of the things that I got a chance to do is something I never get a chance to do, and I got to uh, visit a bunch of friends' churches. And so most Sundays I wasn't here, I think it was here on Easter, and I uh, just had an absolute blast doing that. But um, I think my favorite part of coming back, is everyone's been asking me, you know, how did it go, and what's what some of the highlights? One of the biggest highlight was actually coming back that first Sunday, um, because the best way I can frame it is kind of like this. Um, do you remember like when you first came back the first Sunday after COVID, whether you'd been gone for six months or two years or something like that, and you start seeing all these faces of people that you know and that you love and are basically like an extension of your family, and it was just so exciting to see everyone. And this time, unlike when we came back from COVID, I could actually see people's faces and no one was trying to give me like elbow bumps or whatever. It was like, you guys really did a good job with that. Uh, you're really saving people there. But uh, this, I, had, I, had a, I had a bunch of hugs and just a bunch of great conversations with friends. And it was just so good to be back. And while it's fun to talk about the sabbatical, I could probably talk about it for the whole entire time. I would much rather talk to you all about the passage that we're going through today. Because if you haven't been here for a while, we've been plowing through the book of Genesis. We did the first 11 chapters. We, we took a little break. And now we're back in Genesis chapter 14. 
And one of the questions I've gotten over the years as I've been a, you know, in ministry for well, a better part of 20 years at this point right now is why would we want to study the Old Testament? Like what, what good does it do us? I mean, we're people of the new covenant. Shouldn't we just be focusing on Jesus and maybe just go through the gospels or see the start of the early church or, or, or something like that? And I've had a lot of great conversations with people throughout the years. But as I've been looking at Genesis specifically, there's a podcaster and an author named Marty Solomon. And he answers this question so much better than I could because he was saying that if you read the word of God, like one story, like it's 66 books put together, but it's really just one book, it's one story. And if you read it like that, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's almost like the preface for the whole rest of the book. And uh, chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis, it's almost like the introduction. So ultimately right now, what we're doing is we're learning our story, we're, we're tracing our heritage. Because if we can do that, if we can get a chance to look at the faithfulness of God way back in the beginning, it gives us a better idea of who he is now. It, it helps us, it helps me at least, to trust the promises that he has in the New and in the Old Testament. And ultimately, everything in the Bible is going to be about Jesus. So it will lead us to a deeper worship of Christ. So that's why we're gonna be studying this. And Rick did a great job last week as we got to see the separation of Lot and Abram. Remember uh, Uncle Abram and, and the nephew Lot, they're, they're, people are just quarreling all over the place. They cannot get along because who's eating what and what fields they were using, all this kind of stuff. And Abram graciously takes his son, uh, sorry, not his son, uh, his nephew, and just says, you go ahead and choose where, where you wanna go and I'll just take whatever, whatever's left over. So Lot ends up taking with a, probably the same thing that you and I would take. He takes the super fertile area near Sodom and Abram's left with, with the rest. Um, and what we know about this is we know that these people out here, they're, they're not followers of Yahweh and they're not followers of God. And what happens, it's like we're almost immediately like sucked into like some kind of like mafia story. Because what we see is like there's this conglomerate of different kings and there, uh, one of these kings is forcing people to pay tribute to him. You know, right? That's what they do in the mafia. You know, you have to pay for their protection. Who are you protecting them from? The mafia, right? Um, and ultimately, that's what happens. Around year 13, they're just like, we're not doing this anymore. I, I don't really see the benefits. They're going to see the benefit in year 14 because in comes the mafia to come attack them. And they invade him. They take Lot. They basically take him away, kidnap him. And Uncle Abram, who's got to be about 85 at that point, has to go rescue him. And I'm probably thinking, like, if I'm Lot at this point, like, how embarrassing is it that my 85-year-old uncle has to come and rescue me? But he does. God allows him to win this incredible victory. And what we're gonna see right now is we're right after this victory, right after Lot has come back, and we're gonna be introduced to a couple of really cool characters that we're gonna see pop up, one in particular throughout the rest of the Bible. So that's where we're starting from today, Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. After his return from the defeat of Cater Leomar, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the Valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him. And he said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God the most high who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
every once in a while, we will run into a passage of scripture that you cannot fully comprehend without laying other sections of scripture on top of it that will help to explain it. It's a great Bible study principle, knowing that scripture does interpret scripture. And this is one of these. If you just read this, we go, well, that's kind of a cool story. It gives him a tenth of everything. What, what, what is he actually doing here? And what's happening is we're actually seeing this character, Melchizedek, who's gonna be popping up all throughout the rest of the Bible in, in little subtle ways. And the thing is, based off of what we just read, we don't really know that much about him. We have a couple of ideas of his occupation. We know that he's a king, but it also says that he is a priest. And so what I wanna to do today is if you are like me, you probably have your mind going a thousand different ways when you hear the word priest. And we know ultimately everything within the Bible is going to be about Jesus. So what we're gonna to do today is we're gonna take just a little bit of a time out and we're gonna head into the classroom for a little bit. Um, we're gonna talk about the priestly system that God puts in place, how it eventually points to Jesus, and how Melchizedek actually has a big place in that. Then we're gonna start getting into the passage, we'll get into the application, and then we'll let you guys go. So. If you are thinking, okay, priesthood, what's my frame, frame of reference right here? You, like me, are probably not thinking Old Testament priesthood, right? You're not thinking Levitical priesthood. You're probably thinking what? Catholicism, right? And, and if you're like me, as a child of the 80s and the 90s, your introduction to Catholicism was through Whoopi Goldberg, right? Yeah. No, I mean, Sister Act, I, I, you know? So there was the priest up there. He was giving the message. No one was coming in. And who was he saved by? Sister Mary Clarence singing Phil Spector and Motown. And he was probably just like, are you serious? That's all I had to do to get people to come in, like sing songs that were 30 years old? All right, well. But in the Old Testament, um, there was actually a very specific task that these priests actually did. And at the very end of Moses' life, he's led everyone out of Egypt. He, he starts talking to each individual tribe right before he's about to die. And in Deuteronomy chapter 33, when he gets to the tribe of Levi, this is the tribe of the priests, he tells them exactly what their job is and what they're supposed to do as priests. He says this in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 10. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Ultimately what's happening is they're serving as an intermediary between God and man. And the two main things that they are to do is to teach about God, teach the law, and then they're supposed to offer sacrifices for people's sin. Two main things right there. But there's a big problem with this passage, isn't there? This is about 500 years after our story in Genesis chapter 14 right now. So the question is, Melchizedek, if you were a priest, what in the world are you doing? And second of all, I have this question, if you are a follower of God, if you are a follower of Yahweh at that time, God just came to Abram two chapters ago saying, you are going to be the one. You are gonna be the family that tells the world about my goodness and my glory, and the world will be saved through you eventually in the person of Jesus. And we see Melchizedek, he's not part of that family. So what in the world is going on? What I love about this is it gives us a bigger understanding of the scope of God's people during this time. Apparently, what we find out from Melchizedek is that there were people that were out there worshiping God that were not part of the, the lineage of Abram. He hadn't even had his kids yet. That's the amazing thing. 
So what we actually see is there's people like Melchizedek, Job would be another who's out there in the Old Testament that are worshiping God. So we start this idea that God is making his glory known. As far as what Melchizedek did, the only thing we can do is speculate that he was out there saying, hey everybody, there is a God, his name is Yahweh, you should love him, he's created us, he's sustaining us, he's giving us all these great things. That's about all we can speculate at this point about what he did. No one will talk about Melchizedek for a very long time until this guy named King David shows up. He's a very, very important guy because not only is he serving as the king, he's actually going to prophesy about a coming king. And what he's going to do is he's going to use Melchizedek to actually talk about who this guy is. Because one thing we know about Melchizedek is one thing we don't know about Melchizedek at this point. And what I mean by that is, Almost every follower of God, you'd have, you, can, you can check me on this one in the book of Genesis, there's some kind of gene, genealogy. There's some kind of idea of where they came from and where they're going. For us, that's totally lost. Like, I don't introduce myself like, oh, hello there, my name is Jason Ryan. I am so, uh, son of Stanley J and father of Donovan. You know, it, that's totally lost on us, but to the Jewish people, knowing that there was no genealogy would have really like perked something up in their mind. They would have probably started listening just a little bit careful, a little bit more carefully. And this is what happens in Psalm 110.4 as David is talking about the coming king and the coming eternal priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So going back to this priestly system and everything that's happening here, the earliest you could become a priest was 25 years old, and you had a mandatory retirement age of 50. Now, I'm not a math genius, but I think we've got about 25 years. Does that sound about right? Got some thumbs up. You got some people looking at me. Maybe you're even worse than I am. I don't know. Um, but the way they get out of that office, and interesting enough, that's the only time retirement is talked about in the entire Bible for the priest. So you either die or you retire at the age of 50. But Melchizedek, in their mind, because we don't know where he came from, we don't know where he was going, it's almost like he's without a beginning and without an end because of his lack of a genealogy. Like the best way I think we could probably equate this into our world is one of the things I got to do on my sabbatical, slip it in there again, just so you know, I actually did stuff. Uh, I got a chance to uh, take my family out to Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, one of the things that we got to do there while we were just killing some time, uh, I forget exactly where we were going during that day, but we walked through this old uh, historical graveyard. And it was amazing because there was like senators that, that had been uh, buried there. And one of the guys that was buried there was a guy named John C. Calhoun. He was a vice president, I think, under John Quincy Adams. Um, but how crazy would it have been if there was a tombstone that just had a name on it? Well, we'd be thinking, well, there's something going on there. We don't know where this guy's coming from. We don't know what happened to him. Do you, do you think he had kids? Do you think he had a wife? There's just so much speculation. But in the mind of the Jewish reader, they would go, oh, as I read this passage in the Psalms, that's starting to make sense now. David's able to point back to Melchizedek as he points forward to the Messiah. Like Melchizedek had no beginning and no, no end, the reign of Jesus will have no beginning and no end. He will have an eternal priesthood. He will not be forced to, be, to retire and death will not be a problem because guess what? He's gonna conquer it. And this is what theologians have called a type or a typology, someone that looks forward to the coming and eternal priest. And the writer of Hebrews will again bring up this guy, Melchizedek. He actually brings him up in chapter five. 
He's like, basically says in chapter five, you guys all know Melchizedek, right? Wait, you don't? And he like just blows them up in chapter six, like for their lack of knowledge. So then he finally like calms himself down in chapter seven. And he says this in verses one through three. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of kings and he blessed him. And Abraham gave him a 10th of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God. He remains a priest forever. So now there's a lot of questions that kind of come out, right? Like, like who is this guy? And there's been a lot of speculation that's been out there. Someone actually just came up to me before the first service. They're like, you know, some people think that it's Noah's son. I hadn't heard that. Um, I, don't, I don't think it would be, but a lot of people have landed on, I, I think this is Jesus. Like there's a fancy term, like this might be a Christophany, like when Christ shows up before he was born. I don't think that's what this is. And the reason is, is because at the end of this, it just says that his, uh, with beginning of days without end of life, resembling the son of God. He didn't say he was the son of God. So that's just, just my take on it. I could be wrong. Um, but what they're also saying is that unlike the Levites, their, uh, that the, their time as a priest is gonna end. Jesus' time will never end. His time as a priest will be completely valid. And because of that, his sacrifice that he made for you and for me, not of bulls, not of goats, but of his own body, it's going to be an eternally perfect sacrifice. So unlike those old people back in the Old Testament, when they would come to the priest and they would offer their sacrifices for him, guess what had to happen if they messed up? They had to get right back in the line and start right over again, get another sacrifice. Jesus doesn't have to keep on going to the cross every time that we mess up because of our, our mistakes, because of our sin, because of our, just every time we slip up. And it's incredible because what Jesus is doing, he's answering the call to the priestly system saying, I am the perfect one that can fulfill this. And now guess what? Jesus isn't our go-between. He's our go-to. Because when we go to our high priest, we're also going to our God. Hebrews 10, we'll talk about this very specifically. I got a chance to teach through this uh, uh, at, at a church I was at probably 12, 15 years ago, studying this passage, I kid you not, it changed the way that I looked at God, where I would be so nervous to approach him if I just felt like I had something in my life as a, as a barrier, realizing that Jesus has completely taken that barrier away. And this passage talks about this so precisely. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Completely unparalleled to anything else we've ever seen within human history. When Christ looks at you, he doesn't see your screw-ups. Amen? He sees perfection. And you're probably sitting there going, me? How does that work itself out? Because it's not you. He's basically looking at himself, right? He's given us his righteousness and taken our penalty for what we deserve on the cross. That's why this priestly system is so important that we know this. Because this, when I realized this and started like understanding this a little bit more, it brought me into further worship of God and who he is. 
And now we, as we go back to Genesis with this framework in mind, we kind of get an idea of what's going on. So what happens? So he comes in, he meets this, this uh, priest and this king, this guy Melchizedek, and Melchizedek does what? He blesses him. He actually gives him a, a priestly meal of what? Bread and wine. I, I wish there was just some kind of symbolism there that we could look to, right? It's amazing. It's like throwing forward to Jesus already. And what fascinates me in this whole entire thing is the response of Abram in this passage. And that's where we're going to find ourselves. And this is where I think we have a lot to learn from throughout the rest of this passage today. Because I noticed that Abram definitely recognizes the greatness of God when he sees it. And the question is for all of us, when we have an experience uh, or an encounter with the greatness of God, what do we do in that moment? I mean, I'm not even just talking about the big things. Every breath that we are taking right now is a gift from our God. And when we start to have our eyes open, we start to recognize all these different things that he does for us just to get us from point A to, get to point B, getting out of bed to work in the morning. It's incredible how much he has sustained us, how much he has just kept us going. And when we encounter that greatness and that goodness, what do we do? Because it doesn't just stop there. He's taken us from our point of sin, adopted us in his family and said, oh, and by the way, we're gonna grow you up. You're gonna keep on making disciples as well. That is an incredible gift to be a part of. So that's where we're gonna start some of our points today. When we encounter Christ, point one. I said this to the first service. Recognition is good, but in the moment, I didn't really love it. So I'm gonna say recognition is good, response is better, but I will even say better than that, proper response is better when we recognize the goodness of, of God, when we recognize the goodness of Christ. So this year, um, for my birthday, my wife did something absolutely awesome. She got me the Rocky set. And part of me was thinking, hmm, we should, probably should have had this at some point anyways, because it just seems like a huge oversight in our movie library. So we start binging, and the girls are like, this is so dumb. And I was like, you are so dumb. <laughs> You're apparently you're not allowed to say that to kids these days. Um, but I had this thought coming out of it is that, man, we are really like Rocky in that first movie. Not that we're overcomers, but uh, I don't know if you remember throughout the very beginning of that movie, his, his you know, trainer is just going nuts on him. Just like everything that keeps on going back to saying is you're a bum. Like everything within your life points to you being a bum. You're a tomato can. Like you're not the guy that fights the big fights. You're the guy that warms people up so they can go fight. You're just, you're just a step in the road. And he carries that with him. So there's this scene where he goes back into his apartment the night before the big fight. And he's talking to his girlfriend, Adrian. And he says this. You guys want me to do the voice, don't you? Yeah? Dang it. I'll, I'll give you one sentence of the voice, all right? It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Uh, oh, that's stupid. I'm not, I'm not doing this. You know what? Yeah. This South Philly accent with a boy from California. Come on, this is not going to work. It doesn't matter if this guy opens my head either. All I want to do is go the distance. No one's ever gone the distance with Creed. If I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings, you know, and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, you see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. See, I think we have that bumness, that shame inside of all of us as well. And I would say that even if you're not a follower of God, I'm sure you are well aware of your own shortcomings. You know, um, many of you know that we lost a giant in the evangelical world about a week ago and a pastor named Tim Keller. Um, he's been a hero of many people uh, on this staff. We've referenced him often. 
And as he was talking about this passage, he, he brought up the playwright, Arthur Miller, who wrote uh, Death of a Salesman. And if you're not a, a play person, you know, he was also married to Marilyn Monroe. Can you imagine being such a good writer that you're married to Marilyn Monroe? Like, is that just weird to anyone? But never mind, okay. Um, one of the things that he said is that even after he stopped believing in God, there was still a sense of judgment that he carried around like he needed to prove himself. And I wonder if we were able to take a poll of everyone in this room, how much shame is unnecessarily being carried around? See, this is the thing. We can recognize God as God, the creator, sustainer, redeemer of all things. But so often, like Rocky, we just want to play by our rules. And our response is not what God's necessarily asking for. You know, in the last couple of years since I became the men's pastor, I've gotten a chance to sit down with a lot of guys. And I've noticed this common thread that goes through that we know there's a problem, so I'm going to do something else to actually make myself acceptable to God. I'm going to conquer industry, become the fittest person alive for Rockies. I'm going to go the distance with the world champ. You know, and in doing so, we miss the main point because God is not asking for these things. All he's asking for you is to submit yourself to his rule and his reign and take that gift that he offers you. And ultimately, those things that we try to present to him, it's not gonna fix your shame. And the original priesthood, as we're going back to this whole subject, it couldn't fix that idea with, with sin anyways. It just covered it, is essentially what it did. But in Jesus, we have this great high priest that can remove sin. There's this old theological term called expiation. He completely removes the sin from the subject of the person that gives their life to him. And guess what? Where there's no sin in his eyes, there's no shame. There's nothing to be ashamed of if God's not looking at your sin. And what we have here in Abram is we have a model on how to respond in worship. So point two, when we encounter Christ, first one, we want proper worship. But number two, God wants your worship on his terms. So going back to the original story, back to Genesis 14, Abram is fully aware. The only reason that he won this battle, the reason that he won this victory was because he won it by God's strength alone. Again, he's 85 years old. He's not going to be throwing down with a bunch of guys on the street, okay? But God allows him to win this fight, bring back his nephew Lot, and now what he wants to do is he wants to worship God. And so the question is, like, I have this stuff. I have this possessions. I, I, I want to give something to God to show him how appreciative I am for everything that he's done for me. And what does he do? He runs into this character of Melchizedek. He runs into this high priest, and he gives it to him as that intermediary. He gives it to him. It's not because Melchizedek is this great person. It's because God is a great God. That's why he gives him that tenth. He gives him what we call today, it has been traditionally called, a tithe. Now, I say that word. And I'm pretty sure some of you are just kind of looking like, oh man, he's going to pass the basket again, isn't he? You know, um, we're not going to be doing that. But while, um, but that actually is kind of important to see what this idea of the tithe is. Because what this does is this establishes a baseline for all of the offerings to God throughout the Old Testament. The, the Apostle Paul will come in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He'll actually talk about, he's even going to like up, up the ante. He's going to up the standards and go, well, actually there's some people that are out here who have been blessed greatly by riches, and it's so they can give more than 10% and learn how to be generous. And that's something that God calls us all into. And if you're wondering where to start, I'd say 10% is a great, great place. And if you're looking at that going, I just don't know if that's possible. Find something in your family that works, and I would just say start working towards it. 1% every year. And people get a little nervous when they hear that, just like, man, I just, I don't know. I might be handicapping my family with 90%. God can do so much more with 90% than you can do with 100. 
So that's, that's all we're gonna talk about with, with the offering, but that's really what this is about. The question is, what do we do when we worship God? So a while ago, I found myself in a, in a prayer meeting. And um, this prayer meeting, I was probably 23, 24 years old. It was all these people that were at my wife's school. And um, as we were at this meeting, we were, I'm sitting next to this guy. He looks like, if you guys remember Dick Buckus, like the, like the football player, he looks a lot like him. He's got the flat top, he's got the mustache. He looked like just a really cool guy. He's just built like a human embodiment of like an English bulldog. And um, I really liked him from like step one, but as we start praying, everyone's kind of taking their turn around the table. And this weird thing happens, he's, he starts like talking. And it's starting to get kind of distracting because he's getting louder and he's starting to kind of feed off of himself a little bit. I realized around the second person, is like, oh no, he's, he's not actually even like saying words right now. He's, he's just kind of muttering like nonsense in agreement um, in, in some kind of tongue kind of thing. And the weird thing was, it's like, I, I have no problem. I, I think there's a, a great argument to be made about uh, heavenly angelic language of prayer and uh, speaking in tongues properly. But this was so confusing because as he got louder and louder, like we're literally having like talk over him. And have you ever tried to like, like pray with someone who's like talking at you in, in nonsense? It's really, really hard to concentrate. And I would say, I think this guy had the best of intentions. He had a heart that was very worshipful in that moment. Did God accept that? I genuinely don't know. Because when we look at um, the Bible, there's actually a lot of examples of worship that God doesn't accept. Um, one of those examples being there are these two priests, Nadab and Abihu. They offered fire to God, but it was not the fire that God prescribed for them. It's what they called strange fire. And these were not good guys anyways. And God, in that moment, he struck them down. There, there's this other one where someone's trying to be helpful, going on a road, going on a trip, and the Ark of the Covenant starts to fall. His name's Uzzah. And what happens? He reaches out to stop it. And God's like, no, I didn't ask to be worshiped in that way. Uh, and he struck down too. Here's the thing. The guy that was in the prayer meeting with me, he's still alive. He's doing fine. All right? The point is, though, is I don't want us offering worship to God that he's not asking for. This is why, guys, it is so imperative that we are in the Bible daily. We're seeking it to figure out what is it that God is actually telling us? What is he asking for? Because I want us, and I'm sure your heart's the same way, I want us to be in bounds with what God's asking for. I think it's so easy to just go outside and just go, well, I think he wants this. Not all the time. And sometimes it's not even just us being in the Bible. Sometimes we just, most of the time, I'd say, we have to have community around us processing all this stuff together. I mean, let's face it. When you read the Bible, there should be questions, right? How great is it to have people who have been doing this for a really, really long time sit down and explain to you exactly what's going on? And yeah, I got to go Southern preacher here for a second because, man, it is hot up here. Uh, there we go. All right. Um, that's why it's so good to have a community around us, people who are discipling around us. So that's kind of where we are right there. So if you have any questions, by the way, about the whole tongues thing, just please come talk with me. Just remember, I only speak English, okay? I don't have a heavenly spiritual language. And by the way, my wife warned me. She's like, don't say that. And I was like, I will say it just because you said you didn't. Uh, I said not to. So um, she's a very wise woman. Um, so number three brings us to our last point. When we encounter Christ, we need to remember he's always, always faithful to keep his promises. Um, Melchizedek's not the only person, remember, out there meeting Abram. Um, what we see is the king of Sodom is there as well. And this is what the king of Sodom says to Abram. Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and, worth, of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even the thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you'll never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. What we have here is we have a, a literary foil happening here. Um, we have Melchizedek, the, the king of blessing, and then we have the king of Sodom, where theologians have said, it's almost like he's cursing in some ways. He's like saying, keep the stuff, but I want the world to know that the reason you have all that stuff is because I allowed you to have it. And Abram just goes, no way, man, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm not gonna let you brag off of accomplishments by seeing all the different stuff that I have. It's not gonna happen. I'll give away all these possessions so that the world knows that that didn't happen that way. And so what we have here, remember a couple of chapters ago when uh, God comes to Abram, what does he say? I will bless those who bless you. And there's that other side. I will curse those who curse you. We have a king of blessing and we have a king of cursing. And a few chapters later, what's gonna to happen to Sodom? If you haven't read the Bible, things do not go very well for him, all right? But in Jerusalem, and that's a pretty important place, isn't it? God is keeping his promises that he made just two chapters earlier. And guess what? It's not gonna stop in just two chapters. It's gonna continue throughout eternity. And every once in a while, we need to be reminded of the goodness that God has promised us. So if you're new here, you don't have a lot of background in the Bible, I, I just wrote down six things this week that I want promise uh, that, that um, I want to wash over us as we think about the promises of God. Something that we can look to this week and just go, you know what? I think I'm going to be okay because I know in Scripture this is some of the things that God has told me. So I'm going to throw a couple of these up here right now. What does God promise us? He's promised salvation to all who believe in His Son. Not all who do the right thing. All who believe. God promises that all things will work out for the good of his children. If you're below the age of 35 or so, um, find someone who's lived a little longer, who's gone through some hardships, and ask them where God showed up in their suffering. I guarantee you, it's all over their story. God promises a new life in Christ. Next slide. God promises us comfort in our trials. You know what I found actually where that usually comes from? It's not just the Holy Spirit. It's from everyone in this room. People just loving on you. That's why it's so great to be part of a body. God promised every spiritual blessing in Christ. And God promised to finish the work that he started in us. Isn't that good to be promised stuff like that from a God who loves us? But not only that, but just a God that knows us. It's good to be reminded that there is a God that knows you more than you know yourself and is still absolutely crazy about you. So what do we do when we encounter the goodness and the greatness of God? Well, God's asking us to throw away everything that gets in the way of our relationship with him. I know many of you, you have tried to get rid of your shame like rock. You've tried to do it on your own. You find that it's just not happening. And you want to know why? Because it's impossible for you to pay that sacrifice that Jesus did. It's all based off of him, yet we keep seemingly going back to this old mindset of I can do it on my own, and we change the rules of the game that God has created. 
So for some of you here today, you're just like, oh man, this actually makes a lot of sense. I would encourage you to pull into God because there is a God out there that says, I do not desire your sacrifices. You know what I desire? Mercy. And the mercy is all given through Jesus. So we're gonna pray right now. I'm just gonna encourage you, if you need to just pray with someone, there's gonna be people up here at the end of the service. If you wanna just talk about what a new life in Christ is all about, there's gonna be people at the New Here counter right out there. And I would just encourage you just to pull into him but if you've never given your life to Jesus, maybe today is the day you do it. And there are people that are gonna be around here for you to cheer you on and to love on you as you go throughout that journey. Friends, would you pray with me? Oh, our Lord and our God, I thank you so much for your word. To know that there have been people that have just gone before us and lived lives of faithfulness. And even in Abram, times when he was unfaithful, and we can just look at this as a model and just knowing that there were things that have been out there for so long, men like Melchizedek, that already this early in the story are pointing to your son. And knowing that Jesus is an eternal high priest, his sacrifice was deemed acceptable before you, knowing he's seen us at our worst and noticing, knowing, knowing that he doesn't hold that against us. God, I pray for people here that have never given their life to Jesus, that they understand that Jesus paid it all and that they put their faith in you. Thank you so much, God, for giving us a place to process and a place to learn how to live a new life in you. You are way too good to us, so let us just say thank you and we love you. In your name we pray, amen.